Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Before we dive into our study of another church in Revelation chapter 2, I just wanted to make a couple comments for context. This study is an informal Bible study, and we're actually talking around a meal or right after a meal, so there's a lot of background noise, and I have to admit that the meal probably slows me up a little bit uh, with a full belly trying to communicate, so it's a little bit different than a preaching format or an interview format, but I hope you enjoy the content anyway. So uh, with that said, just if you hear this kind of noise and background and and so forth, uh, that's what's going on. Thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy it. Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 12, we're going to look at another of the seven churches called the church at Pergamos, or Pergamum, some would say. Let's see what we can learn from this. You remember that uh, the book of Revelation, even though largely dealing with the future, Jesus addresses seven contemporary churches in the territory of Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. And um, the city of Pergamos today is called uh, Bergama, I think it's called. And it was kind of the farthest northern, northernmost church of the seven in the circle that he addresses here in chapter two and three. Uh, it's a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea, which is to the west, and 50 miles north of Smyrna, the last church we talked about. And um, this church at Pergamos had, was well known for three things. First of all, it was a center for um, many pagan religious cults, like the worship of Zeus. They had a, a tower to Zeus there that was on top of a hill that could be seen for miles away. It was also... Uh, had a temple to Athena, another god, that in worship of her involved sex. Dionysus, who, or in the Roman terminology would be called Bacchus, who was the god of wine. It was like a goat man. You've probably seen pictures of Bacchus and Dionysus. Looks like a goat man, celebrates wine and so forth. And um, also, there was a uh, kind of a cult that was centered around <clears throat> Uh, Asclepius, which was uh, usually pictured as a, a snake, and there was a uh, kind of a, a center of healing there that uh, worshipped this snake cult uh, of healing. But we might talk about that a little bit more. So it was really a center for pagan religious cults and robust uh, emperor worship also was a big part one of the chief cities for emperor worship. They had a big, large library there, second only to the large library in Alexandria, Egypt. So that was the second thing. And the third thing, it was a leading producer of parchment. Uh, of course, if they had a big library, then they're going to have a lot of parchment, which is what they could write on. Uh, the word, uh, the name Pergamos may come from the Greek word gamas, which means marriage. So the name of the city could could mean married, um, thoroughly married, uh, and we'll find out that they were married to the world, and that's what he's going to rebuke them on. So in verse 12, we have the introduction using familiar language that takes us back to chapter 1, 
and, and also at the end of the book of Revelation when it talks about a sword, because remember each of the churches talk about one aspect of John's vision in chapter one where he saw the Lord. And, and he talks about this two-edged sword and the Lord in chapter one. And so he introduces the letter that way into the angel of the church in Pergamos. Now, of course, we, we didn't have conclusive opinion about what the angel is is it the pastor or is it a spiritual being? There's arguments either way. We've talked about that in the past. But this is what he says to the angel in the church at Pergamos. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword, again, was used in chapter one. It's used again in chapter 19 when Jesus returns with the sword out of his mouth. And the word sword here, there's different words for sword. This word is the sword that is used for killing. Um, so it, it probably pictures a sharp, swift, deadly judgment. And that's how it is used in chapter 19 when Jesus returns and slays his enemies. Now, Hebrews chapter 4.12, you, you're probably thinking about the, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. And that probably has a different connotation, speaking of a two-edged sword meaning blessing and judgment. But here the word sword, I think, is intended to speak of one that is used for judgment and killing. And that seems to be the primary significance here. Uh, now, interestingly, Rome uh, usually preserved the power of capital punishment for themselves. But Pergamos was such a Roman city and well-liked by the Roman government that they gave them the rare power of capital punishment. So the sword might stand for something along those lines of the judgment and even capital punishment. Now, the first thing he does, as in many of the letters, is follows a certain pattern. After he associates it with the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, he, he usually commends them, except for one church that didn't have a commendation. But he says in verse 13, I know your works. And by the way, if you have some versions, it may not say that. But it leaves out, I know your works. But the King James, New King James will have it. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus, obviously, who in chapter 1 is pictured as standing among the churches, knows what's going on in the churches, and, and here he knows who they are, and if you take the reading of the New King James, King James Version, he knows their works, and uh, which implies that they're good works. Um, but he also knows that in their particular situation, and it sounds like a geographical designation, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, what could be meant by Satan's throne? Some people think this could refer to that altar of Zeus, which was way up there on the hill, 800 feet high above the city, and it could be seen for miles around. And so he could be referring to that as Satan's throne. Uh, or it could be that he's referring to Satan's throne as the, a center for Roman uh, cult of imperialism. In other words, Caesar worship, um, which was a growing thing at that time. So we don't know exactly what he means by Satan's throne, but it certainly implies that it was a center of influence for evil. Whether it be Zeus or a center for the Romans or maybe some of the other cults that were there. 
And, uh, and if it is, then it's certainly going to be a place where Christians are persecuted. Any place where Satan has prominence, Romans have prominence, and cults have prominence, you can count on Christians being persecuted. And that's what he mentions with Antipas, his faithful martyr. Um, so there's this atmosphere of evil there. You know, I've been to some places where you you go into, maybe even in the United States, you've been in some neighborhood or some uh, place where it just felt the presence of evil. And I think that seems to be what might have been the that spiritual atmosphere when you approach this city, an atmosphere of evil. I know I go to some countries where they worship idols and spirits and things like that, and you can sense it in the country that there's an atmosphere of evil. So he mentions that um, even though they're in the midst of this evil influence and under the sway of Satan and whatever his throne means, it's some place of influence. He says, you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Uh, so they were faithful to God. They were faithful to who Jesus was and they didn't deny even in the face of persecution. Even when Antipas, who was evidently well known to them and from there, was martyred. He calls him my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So again, he emphasizes this fact that Satan's there. And when Satan's there, he's certainly going to target God's people. We don't know exactly who Antipas was. He calls him a faithful martyr. The word uh, martyr, uh, or faithful witness in some translations, uh, comes from that word. We use it today, martyr, in the sense of somebody who dies for their faith. But the word really means witness. He was a faithful witness. But here he was killed. And um, according to one account, uh, it is said that Antipas was said to have been a dentist and a physician, because remember this was a city of healing. And um, there, there was there the escape, uh, Esculapium, Esculapium, hard to pronounce, that, that had, was signified by this, this serpent. And there was, it was a kind of a complex of buildings devoted to this God of healing. And um, it could be that, of course, if Antipas was a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, he might have denounced something like that. And so it could have gotten the, the pagan healing cult up at arms to the point where they, they martyred Antipas. A little, little bit of speculation there. It doesn't say why he was killed, except for that he was being faithful. But the story is, according to one account, that he was propagating Christianity secretly and they accused him of being disloyal to Caesar, which is always pretense for, for killing someone or punishing someone. And so he was condemned to death. He was shut up in a bronze or copper bull, a hollow statue of a bull, and was heated until it was red hot. And that's how he died. Pretty gruesome. And uh, also, by some accounts, this, this cult of Escapelius, I'm not saying it right still, but um, used to use a snake pit full of snakes and, and to heal some people, especially for mental problems, they would throw them into the snake pit. It was kind of like an ancient shock treatment. 
people would get so scared and shocked that they would supposedly be healed or changed. So there was all this going on. Somehow Antipas, this faithful Christian, crossed, crossed these pagan healers, evidently, and was killed because of it. And all under the influence of Satan, according to this passage. So in verses 14 and 15, Jesus has a complaint against them, however. Even though he's commending them for being holding fast to his name, being faithful in that sense, but there's something against them. Um, it's not so much what they do, but it's what they don't do. They don't separate themselves from evil. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So he mentions two different things here which are probably very closely related. One is the doctrine of Balaam, and the other is the Nicolaitans, who evidently supported or held in some part this doctrine of Balaam. So he's criticizing them because they are, this church is allowing those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam to remain in the church in some way. Now, do you remember the story of Balaam from Numbers? I think it's chapter 21, and we're going to look at chapter 31 here in a second. Chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and, and I think it's 22, 25. I'm not sure without going back and looking at it. We don't have time to read it, but you remember King Balak, the king of the Midianites, hired Balaam, prophet of Israel, prophet for hire, to curse Israel. But every time he tried to do it, a blessing would come out of his mouth. And he said to Balak, I can't curse these people that God has blessed. God would not allow him to curse these people. And so he never was able to accomplish that purpose. So the doctrine of Balaam probably has to do with how eventually Balaam was able, and Balak and Balaam were able to corrupt the Jewish people. And that we find that out later after the Balaam episode that they, they, caused, they sent the women among Israel, the Midianite women, and so Israel intermarried with the pagan women and were drawn into idol worship. And I think the doctrine of Balaam then is the idea of compromising with evil, being married to evil, Pergamos, Gamos, the word marriage, probably is a play on this whole scenario and words here, so that they married into a compromising situation. I think you know that the New Testament tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that uh, not to be, to be not unequally yoked together. And it doesn't just apply to marriage, but many things. We should not be in a mutual agreement where we're obligated to someone who doesn't share our spiritual values and that's especially true of marriage. And so whenever believers marry unbelievers, it, it turns out to be a bad thing. Like Solomon led him astray at the end of his life where he married the six, 300 women and 600 concubines or whatever. And they drew him into idolatry at the end of his life. Well, so what Balaam was unable to do by cursing Israel, Balak was able to devise by sending the Midianite women and to marry with them. And so Moses raised up an army later to go in there and, and undo this evil. 
and by killing the kings of Midian. That's, I'm reading from Numbers 31 and verse 8. So this army that Moses raised up killed the kings of Midian and the rest of their slain, uh, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So they recognized that Balaam was complicit in this wickedness, even though he wasn't able to curse them. And they killed him also under the direction of Moses. And then later on in chapter 31 of Numbers, Moses says to them all, this is in, I'm sorry, verse 16. Um, in verse 16 he says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So Moses is saying Balaam, Balaam had his part in this scheme of drawing the Israelites into marriages with the Midianites. And because of that, uh, they acted treacherously against the Lord and the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. So that's the backstory that we need to understand if we want to understand what's going on in the church of Pergamos. They had compromised themselves. They had married themselves in some way to this, this people in the church had married themselves some way to the ways of the world and brought evil into the church. And he's saying, that's what I have against you. You tolerate them. It's not that they were following them, but they tolerated them and allowed them and caused them to eat things sacrificed to idols, verse 14 says, and to commit sexual immorality. So you can imagine that in a situation like that, you have a man he marries a pagan woman. And where are we going to go to church this, this, this weekend? And she says, well, I tell you what, you go to the idol feast with me this weekend, and next weekend we'll go to your church. <laughs> you know, something like that. I've met so many interesting couples through the years as a pastor. <laughs> I remember one coming to me, well, she's a Mormon and I'm a Catholic, so we decided to come to your Bible church. <laughs> Whatever sense that makes, that's what, that's what I was told. And I've heard that more than once. Um, so there was a compromise brought on by the marriage situation. And whenever somebody went to an idol feast, it didn't involve just feasting and celebrating the idol, but it usually involved sex, sexual immorality. Because sex was the way if you had sex with somebody that represented the God, it was a way of communing with the God and so forth. So there was all that involved. And it just drew them into evil, and Jesus didn't like that. And the same thing with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what that doctrine was. Uh, Nicola Nicolaitan might come from the word um, nikao, which means to conquer or victory, like Nike shoes mean uh, they are as drawn from that word. But they, they're tolerating this doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which perhaps was associated with the doctrine of Balaam. And Jesus said that, which he hates that too. So we don't know exactly what that was, but um, this compromise was starting to corrupt the church. Now remember there are some people who think that these churches represent periods of history. And some people have associated this, and I'm not convinced that that is a good way to interpret the scriptures. I like to interpret history from the scriptures, not the scriptures from history. But some people think that this speaks of the period under Constantine from about 
8,300 to about 600, 8,600. Because in that period, Rome, you remember, was persecuting Christians, but then Constantine saw a cross, had a vision of a cross in the sky, and, and uh, something that said, uh, in this sign, conquer. And so he converted to Christianity, his family converted to Christianity, and the whole Roman society converted to Christianity, which always leaves you a little bit suspect about what exactly they were converting to. Was it a political conversion or a real spiritual conversion? Probably mostly a political conversion. So this is where the Roman Catholic Church was really born, and a lot of the practices like uh, emerged at that time, like prayers for the dead, the worship of Mary, worship of saints, worship of angels, and uh, instead of relationship, Christianity became more ritual. So ritual replaced relationship. So some people think it reflects that period of time where the church compromised their, their uh, true doctrine for the sake of politics and gaining favor with the government, which was now officially Christian, that Const as Constantine had made it. So maybe, maybe not, but it's something to think about. So Jesus is not happy with those things in their church. And he is implying that they need to deal with it. In fact, he says it in verse 16, repent or else I will come quickly to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there's that sword again, it's a sword of judgment. And he's telling them that they need to repent, they need to change their mind, which implies change your ways, or else Jesus is going to come to them quickly. Um, maybe in some kind of temporal judgment, uh, he will deal out justice and, and fight with the sword of his mouth, which is a, a deadly instrument of judgment. And he's going to fight against the heretics, not the church. That's important to note. So, and the sword, by the way, was a symbol of the imperialistic cult of the Romans and Caesar worship. So the sword kind of becomes very important in the symbolism here in chapter 2. And just like the Romans used the sword as their symbol, Jesus said, I'm going to come with the sword of judgment if you don't change these things, change your mind about these things and, and disassociate with, I think, the evil and idolatry worship among you. We come to verse 17, and as all the uh, seven letters have, it, there's a promise at the end. And the promise is to those who overcome. And again, there are two different views. Some believe that all believers are overcomers, and so he's making a promise to all believers. The view I prefer is that the overcomers are those who remain faithful and then they're given a reward. That makes more sense to me because if all believers are overcomers, the way he states it, then it almost looks like salvation would be by works and by overcoming trials and things like that. So I think more consistent with the gospel that we know, that grace is absolutely free and overcomers are the Christians who remain faithful, hold fast to Jesus in the midst of evil or, and don't compromise. So he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a recurring phrase in these letters. In other words, are you listening with your heart? And what is, it, what is the Spirit saying? He says, he who overcomes, that's the one the Christian who's victorious in the midst of this evil, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, 
we have two rewards here for the ones, Christians, who are faithful in this evil environment. First of all, he'll give them hidden manna, and second, he will give them a stone with a name, a new name written on it. So what is he talking about? Well, there's so many different views of this. <laughs> it's hard to be uh, settled on any one view, but we can take some guesses as to what he's talking about. He's certainly talking about rewards. It's hard to see this as salvation, and that's why I don't think he's just talking about all believers will overcome and all believers will receive these things as part of their salvation. It seems to be more of a reward. What is the hidden manna? Well, we know what the manna is. It was sent by God in the wilderness to the Israelites so they could feed them on a daily basis. But remember, some of that manna was preserved and hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. So the, the reference to hidden manna, uh, first of all, seems to imply a very close relationship to God because God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant in his Shekinah glory. And there hidden in the, in the Ark of the Covenant was the manna that God gave them in the desert, symbolizing his provision. But I think there's more to it also because Jesus in chapter 6 of John talked about how God gave them manna in the desert, but he said, and I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. So Jesus compared himself by illustration to the manna that was given to Israel in the desert, but saying, I am the bread of life. So just as that manna preserved them in the desert, so Jesus is saying, I can save you eternally, preserve you eternally. So since Jesus is integral to this vision, I take it that that hidden manna uh, might indicate a more intimate and close relationship with Jesus as the bread of life. Because that manna was hidden right next to the presence of God in the ark. And so if we're given hidden manna, then is that indicating that we will have a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? In fact, I think that's kind of the key to understanding a lot of these promises to the seven churches is that they all seem to hint of or indicate a more intimate relationship and experience with Jesus Christ as a reward. So I think it also has a, another intention here. What he's saying to them is to this group that would compromise and maybe go to the idol feasts, he's saying, look, I'll give you hidden manna. My feast is better than the idol feasts. Feed on me. I'm the bread of life. That kind of could be a, a subtext in all of this. Now, the second reward is called a white stone, and on that stone is a new name, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, white stones are used, uh, stones are used in a number of places in the scriptures, of course, but a white stone was uh, sometimes represented a favorable vote or an acquittal or given to someone who was victorious. So it was always a good thing. White stone was always a good thing. We don't know exactly what that might refer to here, but we do know what it says is that on it there's a name which no one knows except the one who receives it. And so that name seems to give special privileges and again, special intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have thought that Jesus, using manna, was speaking about the millennial kingdom feast. 
the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the white stone would be an invitation with your name on it to be at that marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know about that. Um, I think all believers will be there, but a white stone could indicate a special place in, in that feast, if that's the way we want to go with that. I think the important thing to remember is that it is a reward. It is a special reward. It is an intimate reward because there's a new name written on it. Some people have suggested that the new name is the name of Jesus himself because uh, when he returns in chapter 19, he returns, it says, with, with a new name. A new name usually indicated a, a new or special relationship with Jesus Christ or someone else. Jacob was renamed Israel. Uh, Saul was renamed Paul. Simon was renamed Peter. And um, many Christians even today will drop their Hindu name or their Buddhist name and accept a Christian name to show their new identity. But nobody knows the name, so if they don't know it. I certainly don't know it. But it indicates that uh, since it's a special name, it, it, there's a closer relationship with the one who gives the stone. So uh, these are for overcomers, and it's a sacred name, and it suggests intimacy. You know, some, most, most places I go, uh, if people don't know me very well, they call me Dr. Bing, or they call me Mr. Bing. And uh, my children aren't gonna call me that. Um, my, they call me Dad. My grandchildren call me Papa. Uh, most people call me Charlie. But my family that I grew up with calls me Charles. They won't call me Charlie, they call me Charles. And my wife just calls me Honey Buns. So. <laughs> Good thing you didn't see her. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that. Um, <clears throat> the point is, is that there are some names that people will call you that are more intimate than your given name, perhaps. And so a stone with a new name on it indicates that there's a new relationship, a special relationship, an intimate relationship. And that's about all we can get out of the, that white stone, in my opinion, to be sure of. It's, it's something special and intimate uh, with the Lord. And nobody knows it except the one who receives it. And it's a blessing to them. But we can't be too dogmatic about what the manna is and what the stone is, but they are definitely rewards that indicate a new closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ because we have been faithful. So that's the letter to the church at uh, Pergamum. And what should we take away from this? Well, I think obviously the first lesson is don't compromise with heresy. Um, what fellowship does light have with darkness or demons have with, with the Lord? He asked in second, Paul asked in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, don't allow heresy to get a root in your life or in your church. Cut it off quickly. Uh, if you associate with it, it will rub off on you like Sodom <clears throat> rubbed off on Lot, who did not separate himself from evil but went into the evil. Abraham stayed away. Lot went into the city of Sodom and corrupted his family, even though Lot may have been saved. And in, in this church, people were compromising perhaps to please their wife or their husband and perhaps giving in to some of these idolatrous practices. 
just to keep the peace in the home. But if we don't take care of these things early in life or in church or in marriage or in family, and we let the compromise continue, it usually doesn't end up very well, and it's usually harder later on to make the separation that's needed. The scriptures teach that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. So compromise will, will always hurt us in the end. Dilutes our message, dilutes our witness, dilutes our testimony, dilutes the power of our church, the power of our personal lives. <clears throat> and um, it's a losing proposition. So the story is there's a bear and a, and a hunter and they meet in the woods. And the bear's getting ready to shoot, I mean the hunter's getting ready to shoot the bear. And the bear says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you want? And the hunter says, I want a fur coat. And, and the bear says, well, I want a meal. And so the bear says, well, let's sit down on this log and talk about it. And when they got up, both had what they wanted. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> he had his fur coat and he, the bear had his meal. <laughs> because they compromised and they lost in the end. <clears throat> so in today's church, you know, we see compromise sometimes with doctrine, but a lot of it is a compromise in our moral values. More and more Christians are accepting uh, transgenderism, critical race theory, abortion, because they don't want to be canceled and they don't want to be uncool. They want, don't want to be called racist uh, or insensitive or whatever. And so I see more and more caving to popular theory and popular movements. And that's just the foot in the door that will corrupt the church eventually and cause the church to, to lose its power. So don't compromise with any heresy or any false doctrine at all. Don't allow it. Nip it in the bud. Cut it off as quickly as possible. Resist the temptation to be cool or popular or appealing to people. And then going along with that, I think another thing we can take away is what God hates, we should hate. What God hates, we should hate. God doesn't hate people, so we should love people. But God hates transgenderism when a man says he's a woman and a woman says she's a man. God hates that because it's fundamentally contrary to his creative order from the very beginning. It's a total rejection of God as creator. I don't care how they want to argue about it, but that's at, in essence what it is, is saying, God, you goofed up. You're not a good creator. You made me wrong. And it's a rejection of his created order. So God hates the sin. He loves the confused person. And I've heard testimonies from so many who have come out of that. And, and they said they were miserable the whole time they were playing that role that didn't belong to them. And they knew it was wrong. And that's why so many of them have depression and the suicide rate is so high, I believe. They want to blame it on society. And they want to blame it on the church for saying that they're sinners. But no, it's their conscience condemning them. But what God hates, we should hate. 
don't compromise with popular political trends, social trends. Jesus said in John 15 that the world will hate you. And we just need to get used to that idea. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if we stand for him, stand for his truth and word, people are not going to like everything that we say. We want to be accepted. We want to be cool. We want to act like we're tolerant. So we tolerate the least tolerant people in the world. But we should hate what God hates. Another takeaway from the letter to the church at Pergamos is that Satan is alive and well. I say that because there's some theologies that teach that Satan, we're in the millennial kingdom. They, they think we're in the kingdom now. Amillennial, amillennialism says we're in the kingdom now. And in the kingdom, Revelation teaches that the Satan is locked up. He's chained up in the kingdom. So that how, how can the amillennials support the idea that there's so much evil in the world? And that, and that Peter says Satan is like a roaring lion roaming about the earth seeking who may devour. And um, Job 1.7, we have the example of Satan causing trouble with Job in his life. So Satan is very much alive and well on planet Earth, showing that we're not in the kingdom, but also showing that we need to be very careful that we don't be led astray by him. We need to be very aware of him and his schemes and his tactics. And then finally, uh, a word of encouragement I think we get from this is that just like those who were faithful in the church at Pergamos, we can be faithful in the midst of an evil world. We can be faithful and fruitful in an evil environment. In America, we get our share of evil through a lot of these social movements and so forth. But we also know that in many countries, uh, like my new friend out here that I just met and you know, gave him this gift, He's going back to visit his country, which has been taken over by the military, and they're killing Christians, and they're persecuting Christians, they're stealing and they're raping them. Um, and, and yet, the believers there are holding faithful to the Lord and trusting in Him and continuing to minister in spite of the evil atmosphere of the whole country right now. So be married to Christ and be faithful to Him no matter where the tides and currents of society might take us or tempt us to go, no matter what the evil is that surrounds us and, and, and this, this whole atmosphere that's really heading south morally, be faithful and fruitful in the midst of a wicked environment and be truthful be faithful to the truth and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what society is doing or saying. I see there's a new video coming out titled Live Not By Lies. I don't know, I, I have a feeling I know what it's about because I read a book called Live Not By Lies and that quote is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn who remained faithful in the Russian gulags after he was arrested and imprisoned as a Christian. And for his faith in Christ, he refused to give up his faith in Christ. And he encouraged others, don't, don't live a lie. Stand up for the truth. Live not by lies. And so someone take that title and they wrote a book. Now they're turning that book into uh, some kind of movie or documentary. I'm not sure, but I'm looking forward to it coming out. 
But the point of the of Solzhenitsyn and the book and this movie, I think, is going to be that as Christians, we we need to be faithful to the truth and not shrink away from being the truth, uh, being truthful and holding fast to the name of Jesus Christ. Don't let the pressures of society or false doctrine or immorality or social movements sway us away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And when we're bold and we stand firm in that truth, I think the point is made in these books that I read, that it encourages others to do the same. So live not by lies. You may feel alone, but actually people will gravitate towards you and, and also be bold. And you'll, you'll find that your courage will be infectious towards others. So here you have a church at uh, Pergamos that though they had their faults and were tolerating more than they should, they had been faithful to Jesus in, uh, in the midst of that evil atmosphere. And, uh, and Jesus commends them for it and promises that, them that special reward. And if we are faithful today, we will also receive a special reward from the Lord. So that's the letter to the church at Pergamos. A compromising church, but, but still those who are faithful will get a reward. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.